Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. The listener's commentary is a crowd-funded Bible teaching effort designed to provide in-depth, down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life to help you and me learn and live the Bible. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19, 21 through 41. It is the last snapshot of Paul's extended ministry in the city of Ephesus. In 1920, Luke wrapped up part five of his story, part five of the story of how the church went from Jerusalem and Jewish followers of Jesus all the way to the heart of empire at Rome and to a worldwide movement of Jesus followers from all sorts of different backgrounds. And so he wrapped up part five of that story in 1920. But Paul is still in Ephesus. And so in 1921... Luke transitions to the aim of part six. And so the opening statement of this next scene tells us, here's what we're going to focus on in part six of the story. And then Luke provides one more snapshot of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. Here's how it begins. 1921 says, now, after these things were finished, that is the things that were written about in the preceding verses, Paul's ministry of miraculous power, the seven sons of Siva episode, the burning of the magic books, and all of that. After these things were finished, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And so this transitions to what's going to be the focus of part six, Paul getting to Rome. And in this final act of Luke's drama, what we are going to see is Paul slowly making his way to the city of Rome, and he's eventually going to get there. Not how he intended, not how he planned on getting there, but at the end of the book of Acts, Paul will be in Rome. And so the focus of part six is Paul's resolute determination to get to the city of Rome. He's made these plans, it says, he resolved in the Spirit, in or by the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit's guidance and the Spirit's help, he made these plans. And so his goal is he's going to go to Jerusalem, check in there. But first, he wants to go to Macedonia and Achaia and check in with the churches that he planted on the second missionary journey. And eventually then, from there, he wants to get to Rome. That's the goal. Now, Paul himself mentions a little bit about these travel plans in his Corinthian correspondence. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, for example, verse 5, Paul says, Now, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter there so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I, do want to, I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so Paul says, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus until Pentecost, which is going to be kind of early summertime period. Uh, and then I want to go through Macedonia and come to you. Now, we know from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 15 and 16, that as Paul was finalizing these plans and solidifying his itinerary, he was a little unsure of exactly 
how he was going to go about this. And maybe at one point he thought that he would sail from Ephesus straight to Corinth, check in with them, then go up into Macedonia, and then from Macedonia back to Corinth, and then sail on to Jerusalem. But as he was finalizing his plans, he decided, no, it'd be better for me to go from Ephesus up to Troas, across the sea there, into Macedonia, and down then into Corinth and spend the winter with them that way. And we know that some of the Corinthians who had a beef with Paul uh, got frustrated by his wishy-washiness and they used it as a strike against him saying that he was vacillating and he was uncertain about things and you couldn't count on him. And we know that because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 15 and 16 that, um, that that's how they were viewing things. And so Paul's just trying to sort out his itinerary at this point. And uh, what he's decided to do ultimately is to stay in Ephesus. Uh, and when he leaves, he's going to go up to Troas, over into Macedonia, and then back down south to Corinth. And he will end up spending the winter there in Corinth. So once Luke tells us a little bit about Paul's plans, he then tells us something else that Paul is doing to prepare for his visit to Macedonia and to Achaia, that Paul is actually sending some of his co-workers on ahead. Look at verse 22. After he sent into Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So we get a little bit of Paul's itinerary. He's, he's planning on going to Macedonia and Achaia eventually himself, but first he sends Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia. Now, Timothy has been with Paul for quite a while at this point. He's worked with Paul. Paul picked him up at the beginning of the uh, second missionary journey. And so he has been with Paul at this point for... Uh, oh, five, six, seven years. Erastus, though we don't know a whole lot about him, is likely from Corinth. And uh, we see a mention of him in the letter to Romans, which was written from Corinth. And uh, Erastus is described as the city treasurer. And we actually have an inscription from an Erastus, the city treasurer, uh, marking how he, at his own expense, laid some pavement in the city of Corinth. And so it's probably that very Erastus that we have recorded here in the book of Acts. We have recorded in Romans 16, 23, and we have uh, the Erastus inscription from the city of Corinth, all probably referring to the exact same person uh, here that's mentioned in Acts chapter 19. And so those two are sent into Macedonia. Paul's going to stay behind in Asia or Ephesus for a little bit. Why send Timothy and Erastus ahead? Well, we don't know for sure. We know Paul wants to get there, and so obviously they're going to do a little bit of groundwork and, and reconnaissance and all of that. We know that. Uh, we also know from Paul's letters to the Corinthians that he's, he's Titus is involved and he's sending him ahead to various places too. The other thing we know from Paul's letters is that Paul is also doing a lot of work at this present time on organizing a, in a collection, an offering that he wants to take to the believers in Jerusalem to help with the poor there. They're experiencing some difficulties at the Church of Jerusalem. The region's experiencing, it seems, a little bit maybe of poverty or famine. This is also a gesture of goodwill from his Gentile churches to the home church in Jerusalem. And so Paul is working very hard on this collection. And so it seems like part of the reason that Timothy and Erastus are sent ahead is to do the initial preparation. We have a record of these Paul doing these sorts of things in the Corinthian letters where he mentions that he's sending people ahead to kind of get them ready for the collection. So when he comes, they're already, they've already been gathering up the money. So all he has to do is kind of finalize it. Paul specifically mentions the 
Macedonians in this regard in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and following. And then he mentions the church at Corinth and connection with the church at Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And so if you want to know more about this collection and Paul's interaction with the Macedonian churches and even the church at Corinth in that regard, check out those passages. And so Paul sends Timothy and Erastus ahead, it seems, to prepare the churches for Paul's visit and particularly prepare them with regard to the offering. While they're taking care of that, Paul stays in Asia, that is in Ephesus, for a little bit of time. And as he noted in 1 Corinthians 16, he was originally planning on staying there till Pentecost, which is late summer. And Luke is going to record one more key snapshot of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. Verse 23, here's what happens. It says, about that time... A major disturbance occurred in regard to the way. And so uh, some translations say no small disturbance. In other words, this is a, this is a major issue that happened with regard. Uh, something that was very dangerous, something that actually could have real repercussions concerning the way. That is the way of Christ, Christianity. This is just a nickname for the followers of Jesus. Here's the major disturbance. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing considerable business to the craftsmen. This is actually fascinating that we get his specific name mentioned here. Um, we also know that Demetrius is a silversmith and he made silver shrines of Artemis. Uh, in other words, little miniature temples or little icons of Artemis's image. And he's doing that in conjunction with other craftsmen, other silversmiths, people of similar trades who are all providing uh, little statues, little shrines, little devotional icons for Artemis. Now, who's Artemis? Well, Artemis is the major goddess of the city of Ephesus. Um, the, the Temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We'll talk about it in a little bit more. Artemis uh, was like the center of city and civic life. Their identity was tied up with her. Uh, we even he see here considerable business to the craftsmen. There was a certain level of wealth and prosperity that came from that. Her temple was so glorious, people traveled to see it. The, temp the temple was also used as a bank. Um, and uh, they had uh, two major festivals a year in her honor. Uh, and so she is the center of their life, and she is the center of Demetrius and these other craftsmen's livelihood. Um, this is probably like the trade guild of silversmiths who, uh, in some regard, have all gathered together around this business of creating devotional objects in honor of Artemis. And Demetrius seems to have some clout with the silversmiths. Maybe he's in charge of the trade guild at this point in time. Not sure, but notice verse 25. He gathered these men together. He gathered all these craftsmen together who are making these kinds of devotional objects. And this is very common. Oftentimes people in these similar trades, they had their shops in a certain sector of the city. Uh, they were gathered together in a guild that provided support. And uh, they even provided sometimes, you know, almost like covered burial costs when people died. So these trade guilds were a big deal. So he gathered the trade guild of these silversmiths together and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. Um, not just him individually, but our collectively, like 
our whole wealth and livelihood depends on Artemis and being able to make uh, devotional objects in her honor. So you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. And so, again, this speaks of the impact of Paul's ministry. Uh, even Demetrius realizes people are turning away from worshiping Artemis left and right, not only in Ephesus, but all throughout Asia. And because of that, here's what he says to these craftsmen in verse 27. He says, not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And so notice how Demetrius pairs their financial prosperity with their civic pride and their civic loyalty and their religious devotion to Artemis. Like we could lose our business and Artemis may lose her magnificence and her honor. And he pairs those two. And because Artemis was so much at the center of city life and their their identity as a people that uh, there's a lot of motivational appeal in Demetrius's words. Now, before we look at the response to his words, let's talk just a tiny bit about uh, the temple of Artemis, since he mentions specifically the temple of the great goddess Artemis. As I noted earlier, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It stood on a platform that was 80 yards wide and 140 yards long. It had 127 columns that were all 60 feet high on which the, the roof was supported. Uh, because of some earthquakes in the area it was actually built on a layer of charcoal and hides to give it some flex to protect it a little bit from earthquakes. Uh, it was filled with sculptures made of gold and paintings and artwork. It was a tourist attraction. People came from all over the world to visit it because um, of how beautiful and incredible it was, as well as a center of religious devotion. It was also uh, a like the first bank of Asia, it served sort of as a bank for Asia, storing and loaning money and thus of major financial influence. And so the temple of Artemis was, was not just like one temple among many. It was the temple of this city and the city uh, itself, like as a, uh, they had huge festivals in her honor where all work would stop and everyone pledged their allegiance to, to Artemis. Archaeologists have discovered... Uh, cult centers to Ephesian Artemis in at least 33 cities throughout the empire. So Demetrius's words are not overstating the case. The temple of Artemis was massive and important and famous and magnificent. And so in view of Paul's powerful ministry and people coming to faith in Jesus, he's worried about their business and their wealth. He's worried about Artemis's honor and magnificence as well. And so he appeals to all of that to the craftsmen. Verse 28 then tells their response. When they heard this, uh, they were filled with rage and they began shouting, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the craftsmen are filled with rage and anger and passion. And they begin shouting out in Artemis's honor, giving a triumphal shout in her honor. Presumably wherever they were meeting, they moved out into the streets and they're shouting this. And so verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. And so 
what's everyone shouting about? And other people joined in. And since life has lived out in the public, uh, now everyone's wondering what in the world's going on. And they rush together into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's Macedonian traveling companions. And so they grab two of Paul's traveling companions, um, Gaius and Aristarchus, two people again that we don't know tons about. But it reminds us that Paul actually had a whole entourage, a whole team of people that traveled with him, and we only know a few of them. And these are people that came with him, that he was teaching and training and equipping for ministry and sending out to plant churches, leaving behind after he started a church to strengthen those churches. Well, these two, Gaius and Aristarchus, are the two that, for whatever reason, the crowd of people could find, and they recognize them as uh, associates of Paul. And so they drug them into the theater uh, as the crowd rushed into the theater. If you get on Google and you Google uh, the, you know, Ephesian Theater, Ephesus Theater, you'll see a picture of this theater. It, was, it could seat 24,000 people uh, built into a hillside. Uh, as you sat in the seats of the theater and looked down towards the stage, originally there, there was a street that went straight out from there right to the harbor. And in Paul's day, the harbor would be seen from... Uh, the theater. It's currently been silted in, and so it's a few miles away from the ruins of Ephesus now. But in Paul's day, the harbor came right to the end of that road that uh, runs straight out of the theater. And so here's this massive theater and all these people jamming into the theater, and they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, drag them into there. Verse 30, Paul wants to go to the theater. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples wouldn't let him. No, not smart, Paul. Don't do it. And also, verse 31, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent word to him repeatedly, urging him not to venture into the theater. Asiarchs are uh, people of influence and power in the city. They participated in the city council. Uh, they uh, are wealthy, influential, aristocratic inhabitants of the area. Um, they were expected to, for example, finance public games and festivals. All this uh, tells us that Paul has some pretty prominent friends there in the city of Ephesus. Whether they're believers or not, they're at least friends of his, right? And they repeatedly urged him, don't do it. Don't venture into it. That crowd is crazy and they're upset, not safe. So they kept Paul from doing that. Verse 32, so then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. It just started with the silversmith sh shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They didn't know what exactly was going on and what had motivated all this. And so now there's just like chaos and an uproar in the city. Verse 33, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. So there's this guy named Alexander that the Jews put forward on the stage there in the theater. And Alexander's going to motion with his hand. He's going to make some sort of defense to this. We don't know who this Alexander is. We don't know why he was put forward. If he was just the leader of the, one of the synagogues or a key Jewish leader in town, we're not sure. But he figures, well, maybe I can quiet the crowd down. So he motions to quiet him down, and he's going to make some sort of defense uh, explanation to the assembly. But when they realized he was a Jew, once again, they started crying out, um, as before, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they shouted out for two hours about this. 
Um, why would they react that way to Alexander since he was a Jew? Well, because again, the Jews were also known for rejecting idolatry and their worship and all of that. And so when they saw him, uh, they just reacted in the same passion and fervor that they had before. And for now, a couple hours, um, there's just chaos and chanting in Artemis's honor in the city, particularly in the theater. Well, eventually, they got to get this thing under control. And so eventually, verse 35, here's what happens. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what person is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from the sky? So the town clerk comes in and he's going to give a speech to try to you know, disband the crowd and end all the chaos in the city. Who's the town clerk? Well, the, the word clerk makes it sound like you know, he's some sort of menial office worker that works in the city, the city offices or something like that. But that's not who he is. And the town clerk is actually uh, roughly equivalent to like the mayor. He's like the highest civic officer in the city of Ephesus. So he's the, the chief magistrate of the city. And he led city politics. He spoke for the city assembly. So this is the right guy for the job, all right? That's why he's the one that steps up. And he comes and he's going to give a speech. And initially he appeals to their civic pride. Like, look, guys, everybody knows that we're the guardian of the temple of Artemis and we're the, the guardian of the her image, which fell down from the sky. Some legend or myth about Ephesus, how the image of Artemis fell, fell down out of heaven. And so everyone knows that we guard her temple. We're the protector of her image and that her image came from heaven itself. That's how he starts his speech. And then he goes on in verse 36 and he says, So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Don't, uh, don't overreact. Don't get out of hand. There's reasons for his concern about that. And we'll see as he speaks uh, further why, why he's concerned about that. Verse 37, he says, For you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess, both of which could have been you know, really serious charges. Uh, laws have been passed against robbing temples uh, of statues and icons and wealth and all of that. These guys haven't done that. You, there's no evidence that they're temple robbers. And notice, they're, they're not blasphemers of our goddess. In other words, they haven't made any public statements speaking against Artemis. That's important, and I think that's fascinating, um, because it says that Paul and his ministry didn't spend his time arguing against the false gods, such as Artemis, uh, as he did promoting the true God, Jesus himself. And so they're not blasphemers of our goddess. So then... Here's what the city clerk says. Here's his, what he says. This is what you guys actually need to do. Verse 38. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available, have them bring charges against one another. In other words, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who started this uproar, and the, the city clerk has figured that out, he's done enough asking of questions to figure out where did all this begin. So if they've got a, if they've got a complaint, they need to handle it through the proper legal channels. That's what he's saying. There are courts, there are proconsuls, there's a regular calendar of hearing cases and bringing complaints. They need to do it that way. 
Um, and so have them bring charges according to the legal processes. But, verse 39, if you want anything beyond this, it needs to be settled in a lawful assembly. That is, a formal assembly of the, the city itself, not a riot, not this kind of chaotic thing. If, if you need more than the charges that Demetrius are giving, then we need to gather as the, uh, the citizens' assembly of the city. We need to have a formal meeting, and we need to put a motion forward, and we need to discuss it. That's what lawful assembly refers to, is the citizens' assembly of the city. Interestingly enough, one of the words used for the citizens' assembly of the city is the word ecclesia, that we also translate church. Um, and it reminds us that word was not exclusively a religious word. It was just a word that referred to and was well known as an assembly of persons. Um, and so here it's referring to the civic assembly of the city. And the city clerk is like, if, if we need to deal with this, let's deal with a, a regular scheduled uh, official city meeting. Four, verse 40, indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no real reason for it. And in this connection, we will, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. This is a real concern. The Romans looked with great displeasure on uh, disturbances of the peace, rioting, and anything like that. And so if they were accused of rioting, the Romans could actually revoke some of their freedoms as a city and their freedoms to gather and some of that. Um, the Romans hated these kinds of disturbances. In fact, it, it, the most extreme penalty for a severe rioting would be death. Uh, restrictions then could be placed on a city. And in fact, the Temple of Artemis was already under the watchful eye of the, the proconsul because of uh, some illegal activities that the Emperor Claudius had at actually issued edicts against eight years prior to this time period. And so there was already a, a certain level of insecurity there. And so the city clerk's fear is real. And so it's like, no, this is not the way to handle this. And after saying this, verse 41, he dismissed the assembly. And with that, Luke's portrayal of Paul's ministry in Ephesus concludes. And as we reflect on Paul's ministry there, I just think one of the major themes that grows out of all the little snapshots of Paul's time in Ephesus is the power of the gospel to overcome pagan powers. Like Jesus triumphs over pagan powers here in Ephesus. We see that with regard to uh, the magic practices and even the seven sons of Siva and some of that. We see that with Artemis and how Paul's preaching of the gospel and preaching of Jesus is done in such a way that though he's not outright blaspheming the goddess, as the city clerk said, um, he is implying her deficiency, her weakness, and that Jesus is more powerful than that. And people are coming to faith in Jesus, and they're leaving behind their magic practices. They're burning their magic books. They're leaving behind the worship of Ephesus. And it illustrates for us the importance of really contextualized ministry, and ministry that speaks in such a way that it elevates Jesus um, in such a way that Jesus himself can triumph over um, culture's flaws and culture's weaknesses. And Paul is putting forward Jesus far more than he is running down culture. And the inevitable result is that as people come to faith in Jesus, it begins to 
it creates this kind of tension, this kind of conflict, because it implicitly means absolute loyalty to Jesus himself. And as people begin to find their soul identity in Jesus, it changes their behavioral practices. It changes where they find help and security and meaning and value in life. That's what happens here in Ephesus, and it continues to happen today. As people actually get to know Jesus, it changes what they live for and how they live.